Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Darwin Devolves. Michael Behe recently published a new book, Attacking Evolution and Promoting Intelligent Design, Darwin Devolves. Behe also authored Darwin's Black Box, a creationist favorite, coined the phrase irreducible complexity, and was a key part of the Kitzmiller v. Dover trial in Pennsylvania, where it was ruled that intelligent design was not science and was religious in nature. He's also a senior fellow at a conservative think tank that promotes intelligent design called the Discovery Institute, or Disco Toot, as Stephen Novella calls it. If you're not familiar, the Disco Toot engineered the Teach the Controversy campaign that was aimed at smuggling creationism into biology education. The problems with his book begin with the title. Devolution or de-evolution is not a thing, as far as biology is concerned. Evolution just means change. If you gain eyes, that's evolution. If you lose eyes, that's evolution. De-evolution is only something you would say before you learned anything about evolutionary biology. As biologist Nathan Lentz wrote in his article for Skeptic Magazine, quote, I had never heard the word devolve or de-evolution used in a scientific context until I read this book. Behe means it as the opposite of evolution, which doesn't make much sense in biology. End quote. A word like de-evolution implies that there's a preferred direction to evolutionary change, as if there's a goal that we can progress towards or regress from rather than life simply changing over time, adapting to its environment. Species are not immutable, and this was a prevailing pre-Darwinian idea that had to be overcome in order to see the full evolutionary picture. Richard Dawkins, inspired by Ernst Mayer, has speculated that, quote, the dead hand of Plato was one of the culprits delaying the discovery of evolution. The ancient philosophical doctrine and natural psychological tendency of essentialism kept humanity from evolution even as we were grasping Newton's mathematical ideas, which seemed to be far more complicated and counterintuitive than evolution by natural selection. Essentialism is also the culprit behind a nonsensical word like de-evolution. For Plato, every triangle we see in the material world is an imperfect shadow of the true essence of triangle. There exists an ideal, essential triangle, and every triangle we see is but a shadow on the wall of our cave, an imperfect manifestation of the true, essential reality. And I'm quoting from Dawkins' book, The Greatest Show on Earth. Biology is plagued by its own version of essentialism. Biological essentialism treats tapirs and rabbits, pangolins and dromedaries, as though they were triangles, rhombuses, parabolas, or dodecahedrons. The rabbits that we see are shadows of the perfect idea of rabbit, the ideal, essential, platonic rabbit, hanging somewhere out in conceptual space. Flesh and blood rabbits may vary, but their variations are always to be seen as flawed deviations from the ideal essence of rabbit. How desperately unevolutionary that picture is. The Platonist regards any change in rabbits as a messy departure from the essential rabbit. The evolutionary view of life is radically opposite. Descendants can depart indefinitely from the ancestral form, and each departure becomes a potential ancestor to future variants. Indeed, Alfred Russell Wallace, independent co-discoverer with Darwin of evolution by natural selection, actually called his paper on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original type. End quote. There is obviously a population that we can call the rabbit population, 
even though there is no standard essential rabbit that we can evolve towards or devolve away from. There can be a standard rabbit, but only in the sense that there is a center of a bell-shaped distribution of genes slash traits in a population, but it's determined by a cloud of rabbits, a population, rather than an essential platonic rabbit. The cluster of genes changes over time. What was once the far end of the distribution could be in the center later in history. Over geological time and a sufficient number of generations, there may be no overlap between the ancestral and descendant distributions. This is the evolutionary alternative to platonic rabbitiness, according to Marin Dawkins. Population thinking. Rather than an essential form, there is only an ever-shifting cloud of traits. As Dawkins puts it, there are only populations of furry, long-eared, coprophagous, whisker-twitching individuals, showing a statistical distribution of variation in size, shape, color, and proclivities. End quote. It's not that the word de-evolution has never been uttered before by an evolutionary biologist. It's just rarely, if ever, used. And when it is, it's in passing or employed as a shorthand. It's never given the centrality or technical importance that Behe gives it for the reasons I've been outlining. It makes you sound like you don't understand evolution. Moving forward, I won't use creationism and intelligent design interchangeably. ID proponents don't like it, and they're actually not the same thing. Ken Ham, creationist, thinks that God made rabbits, humans, and trees. Michael Behe, intelligent design proponent, thinks that God made the biochemical parts that made rabbits, humans, and trees. Creationists just say God did it whenever they see something complex or seemingly purposeful. ID proponents say an intelligent designer did it whenever they see something like that. What's funny to me is how offended B he seems to get when he's called a creationist. In an op-ed, the biologist Jerry Coyne referred to intelligent design as creationism in a cheap tuxedo, and B he was indignant in a response post. There are different kinds of creationists. Not all of them think the Earth is 6,000 years old. And Behe happens to be the kind of creationist who accepts that the Earth isn't less than 10,000 years old, and also that all species are related via common ancestors. For Behe, and for all creationists, gaps in knowledge are simply filled with the designer. And his particular gaps have more to do with biochemistry and the mechanisms of evolution, rather than evolution itself. He doesn't believe in a young Earth, where all species have existed in their current form. He believes that natural laws can't account for evolution, and that a god is necessary to drive biological complexity and major evolutionary change. The central assertion of ID advocates is that biological life and our universe generally suggest design. An intelligent designer is required to explain the universe that we see. There is no way, they argue, that the world before us, with biological and cosmological complexity, could ever have arisen through natural processes. The evolution of matter over time, orchestrated by the laws of nature, could never create human beings, nor could such impersonal, mindless processes give rise to the other wonders of our universe. That's been the claim since William Paley and the watchmaker argument, and even Aquinas and the argument from design. Today, there's talk about irreducible complexity and genetic information, but the basic claim hasn't changed. We need a watchmaker to explain the complexity and apparent purpose we see. As for Darwin Devolves, the thesis of the book is an amalgam of a few old creationist canards, primarily that mutations are usually bad and macroevolution can't occur naturally. That's an oversimplification and we'll get into the weeds of Behe's claims in a minute, but let me read what it says on his website. Quote, Dr. Behe shows that new scientific discoveries point to a stunning fact. 
Darwin's mechanism works by a process of de-evolution, not evolution. On the surface, evolution can help make something look and act different, but it doesn't have the ability to build or create anything at the genetic level. Critically analyzing the latest research, Behe gives a sweeping tour of how modern theories of evolution fall short, and how the devolving nature of Darwin's mechanism limits them even further. End quote. This is not a new idea from creationists. It's being presented as new to sell a book, and they're emphasizing a catchy PR phrase, de-evolution, which is a word that will turn off anyone who knows anything about evolution, but that's not Behe's audience. First, it should be said that we cannot infer intelligent design from supposed flaws in Darwinism. Poking holes in another idea doesn't automatically lend credence to your idea. To quote Herbert Spencer, Those who cavalierly reject the theory of evolution as not adequately supported by facts seem to forget that their own theory is supported by no facts at all. End quote. It's a pretty standard God-of-the-gaps move to claim we don't know how X happens, therefore God. If there are gaps in our knowledge, or problems with Darwinism, real or imagined, we're not justified in leaping to intelligent design. A positive case must be made. Behe's case against Darwinism isn't very compelling, and we can't infer design simply from flaws in Darwinism in the first place, let alone design from a specific god. lots of mutations that help but the bottom line is that overwhelmingly the mutations are ones that break things that were already there they take genes that are working in some organisms and figuratively snap them and throw them away and that helps in some circumstances and people might wonder you know how how can breaking something help well, if you, uh, if you think of your car, suppose your life depended on you getting better gas mileage for your car. You know, what's a quick and easy way to get better gas mileage? Well, of course, you can throw things away. You can take off weight. You can take the doors and throw them away. Take the hood and throw it away. Of course, those are useful in some circumstances. But if right now your life depended on your car getting better gas mileage, uh, the way to go is to, is to throw those out. Nacelle does that too. I, I just imagine a lot of people are thinking, well, so what? In other words, if mutation is, the genetic code is broken here and that helps, why is that a problem for Darwinism? Well, because it shows that Darwin's mechanism is actually powerfully devolutionary rather than evolutionary. It, strongly tends to break things, throw them away, like the example I talked about, and that's not going to be something that constructs sophisticated molecular machinery such as we found in the cell. Okay, so The central claim of Darwin devolves is, is that natural, unguided changes in the gene sequence can sometimes be adaptive, that is, they increase fitness, but they can only diminish the function of genes. Mutations can never, quote, build or create anything at the genetic level. According to Behe, evolution should eventually grind to a halt without intervention from an intelligent designer. Quote, Not only is the Darwinian mechanism de-evolutionary, it is also self-limiting. That is, it actively prevents evolutionary changes at the biological classification level of family and above. End quote. In other words, macroevolution. He thinks that organisms left to nature alone will eventually stop changing and remain in the same form that is, without the influence of something else, perhaps a designer. 
The reason for this can be summarized in what Behe describes as, quote, the central argument of the book. Quote, first rule of adaptive evolution. Break or blunt any gene whose loss would increase the number of offspring. He continues, the rule summarizes the fact that the overwhelming tendency of random mutation is to degrade genes, and that very often is helpful, increasing helpful broken and degraded genes in the population. End quote. In order to understand Behe's arguments, we need to separate two similar-sounding concepts, adaptation and gain-of-function. Adaptive simply means aiding in survival and reproduction, which may or may not include a gain in function. Function can be maladaptive depending on the environment, so disabling a function that has a deleterious effect would increase genetic fitness, even though it would degrade genetic function. When Behe claims that adaptation often breaks genes, He's referring to protein-encoding genes that are no longer producing proteins because of mutation. This can often be adaptive, but Behe wants to see adaptive gains of function, not just adaptations. He's claiming that random mutation is unable to create genetic gains of function, or lead to evolutionary change, quote, at the level of family and above. According to Behe, gains of genetic function would rarely occur by random mutation and natural selection. Intelligent intervention is required for innovation, and adaptive gains of function on the genetic level. To be clear, he believes that macroevolution has in fact occurred, and that adaptive gain-of-function mutations have occurred. He just believes that natural processes cannot account for these facts. Well, he thinks that natural processes can be imagined that could explain these facts, but there's no evidence that those explanations are anything but just-so stories, or unverifiable narratives. I'm sorry if any of that was confusing, but Behe's thesis is somewhat confused. He makes confident, sweeping assertions before hedging and backpedaling if he's pressed. You never know which empirical data he'll accept or which he'll wave away as fake or unimportant. Behe himself is a strange transitional fossil between creationism and acceptance of evolution. As science has pressured religion to change over the decades and centuries, some have doubled down and others have conceded points here and there. Michael Behe isn't more sophisticated, he's just conceded different points than most other creationists. For the moment, let's back up a step and go over some basic evolutionary biology to make sure we can fully understand where he's coming from and where he goes wrong. The basic Darwinian picture is that rather than by purposeful design, biological systems evolved over time, driven primarily by natural selection. While natural selection is certainly not a random process, it acts on a mass of random, unplanned, chance variations. These variations are conserved or eliminated over time by natural selection, and this process produces organisms that are exquisitely adapted to their environmental niches, which can create a powerful illusion of purposeful design. The raw ingredients for evolution are replicators making copies of themselves. And these copies aren't exact copies of the parent replicators, resulting in variation within the population. The environment determines which traits are adaptive, which are deleterious or maladaptive, and which are neutral. Adaptive simply means aiding in survival and reproduction. A trait that is maladaptive is harming the gene's continued existence, or lowering the amount of copies of itself it will contribute to the next generation, in that particular environment. Once we have replication, variation, and time, we can have differential success in survival and reproduction, evolution by natural selection. 
And by replicators, I mean just that, stuff that can make crude copies of itself. Traits of the parent are passed on to the offspring. Variation simply means that the replicators are not all identical. Some have traits that others do not, and depending on the environment they happen to find themselves in, these differences will cause different outcomes regarding survival and reproduction. In other words, how long you exist, and how many copies of your genes you pass on to the next generation. Not all replicators in the population survive and produce offspring. Some die before they reproduce, others never produce viable offspring. Who survives and passes genes on to the next generation is not random, but depends on the traits of the organism and the environment it finds itself in. Each successive generation yields minor changes, and over time, these changes accumulate. This was the final clue, a relationship between the environment and the reproduction of populations. Darwin reasoned that living beings compete over resources, and only the most fit for a given region survive. It's as if nature selects them, hence his choice of the term natural selection for the primary mechanism of evolution. Compare this to natural theology. There's no creator involved, species aren't fixed, the process takes eons, and design? What design? Useful traits emerge over time. At the same time that he was working on To clear up a common misunderstanding, fittest doesn't mean the biggest, strongest, meanest, or least altruistic. It could, depending on the environment, but it's not implied by fit in survival of the fittest. The fittest in a given environment could be the most altruistic and most social. It could mean having a slightly different shaped beak than your neighbors. It could mean being able to withstand intense heat or cold. What's adaptive is determined by the environment, and environments vary greatly. To clear up another common misunderstanding, mutants are not monsters, or X-Men. Outside of biology, mutant or mutation are freighted terms and carry a slightly negative connotation, contributing to all kinds of unjustified fear over GMOs, gene editing, as well as fueling the common misconception among creationists that mutations are inherently harmful, or involve drastic changes to the organism. Behe doesn't make that exact mistake, it's just worth mentioning since creationists generally seem to be working more with the colloquial definition of mutant than the biological one. As I mentioned earlier, we need to separate gain of function and adaptation. Adaptive simply means aiding in survival and reproduction, how long it exists and how many copies it makes which may or may not include a gain in function. Calling attention to adaptive loss-of-function mutations has been a hobby horse of Behe's for several years now, and it's included in his so-called first rule of adaptive evolution. In a paper from 2010, he reviewed lab evolution in viruses and bacteria, surveying which kinds of adaptive mutations, loss or gain of function, tend to occur. Darwin Devolves is actually based on his 2010 paper, and you can see his thesis taking form. Quote, Adaptive evolution can cause a species to gain, lose, or modify a function. It is of basic interest to determine whether any of these modes dominates the evolutionary process under particular circumstances. Because mutation occurs at the molecular level, it is necessary to examine the molecular changes produced by the underlying mutation in order to assess whether a given adaptation is best considered as a gain, loss, or modification of function. Although that was once impossible, the advance of molecular biology in the past half-century has made it feasible. In this paper, I review molecular changes underlying some adaptations, with a particular emphasis on evolutionary experiments with microbes conducted over the past four decades. 
I show that by far the most common adaptive changes seen in those examples are due to the loss or modification of a pre-existing molecular function. End quote. It's not 100% clear in Darwin Devolves whether Behe claims that adaptive evolution can never cause a gain in function, or that it only very rarely causes a gain in function. Nathan Lentz indicates in his skeptic article that Behe is claiming the former, never a gain in function. As Lentz has noted, however, Behe will hedge his claims if he's under pressure. Michael Behe wrote in February 2019 that it's merely the, quote, overwhelming tendency of random mutation to degrade genetic function rather than an absolute rule. We'll deal with both potential options later on to be as thorough as possible. So this next point is important. In fact, Behe says that it's the overwhelmingly important point. So let me read his brief rebuttal to criticism he posted on evolutionnews.org, the conservapedia of science websites. Quote, The overwhelmingly important point to notice right up front is that the reviewers have absolutely no response to the very central argument of the book the argument that I summarized as an epigraph on the first page of the book so no one could miss it, the one that I included in the title of a 2010 quarterly review of biology article upon which the book is based, the one for which I chose the most in-your-face moniker I could think of consistent with a professional literature to go to response. The first rule of adaptive evolution, break or blunt any gene whose loss would increase the number of offspring. The rule summarizes the fact that the overwhelming tendency of random mutation is to degrade genes, and that this is very often helpful. Thus, natural selection itself acts as a powerful de-evolutionary force, increasing helpful broken and degraded genes in the population. And they had no response. That's because there is, in fact, nothing that can alleviate that fatal flaw in Darwinism. End quote. This is not exactly a fatal flaw in Darwinism. Behe's first rule of adaptive evolution, which is the central argument of the book and the main thing Behe wants a response to, further exposes his lack of understanding when it comes to evolutionary biology. To quote Stephen Novella, creationists don't understand evolution. The fundamental problem with Behe's first rule of adaptive evolution is that it confounds frequency and importance, as biologist Richard Lenski puts it. Behe isn't wrong when he claims that the majority of mutations are not adaptive. And he's also not wrong when he says most mutations don't add function. He overstates how overwhelming the tendency is in both cases, but he's not wrong. To quote Lenski, I would tone down Behe's rule as follows. The tendency of random mutation is to degrade genes, and that is sometimes helpful. Many mutations are selectively neutral or so weakly deleterious as to be effectively invisible to natural selection. While loss of function mutations are sometimes helpful to the organism, I wouldn't say that's very often the case. And even those degradative mutations that are not helpful on their own sometimes persist and occasionally serve as stepping stones on the path towards new functionality. Behe then asserts the power of the de-evolutionary process of gene degradation. This is an unjustifiable extrapolation, yet it's central to Darwin Devolves. It's not the sort of error I would expect from anyone who's deeply engaged in an earnest effort to understand evolutionary science and present it to the public. And Lenski continues, Yes, natural selection sometimes increases the frequency of broken and degraded genes in populations, but when it comes to the power of natural selection, what is most frequent versus most important can be very different things. End quote. Let's take Behe at his word for the moment that he intends to say that the overwhelming tendency of random mutation is to degrade genes, not that random mutation can only degrade genes. 
He seems to think that the adaptive gains of function would be swamped by the more numerous loss of function mutations. But this is seriously not how natural selection works, for the reasons Lenski was outlining. Anything that is adaptive, by definition, will succeed in making copies of itself. Evolved over time. They quote a Frenchman about how the Polynesian canoe evolved over time. Every boat is copied from another boat. Let's reason as follows in the manner of Darwin. It's clear that a very badly made boat will end up in the bottom after one or two voyages, thus never be copied. One could then say with complete rigor that it is the sea herself who fashions the boats, choosing those which function and destroying the others. If it comes back, copy it. That's natural selection. Doesn't require any particular comprehension. You don't have to be a naval architect. You follow that rule and the boats are gonna gradually get better. You may make some mutations. Most of your mutations may make worse boats. Doesn't matter. Any that happen to make better boats, that will be copied and so forth. The point is that gain of function mutations don't need to happen the majority of the time in order to proliferate. That's not how natural selection works. If there's a valuable gain of function, those genes will make lots of copies of themselves. That's what it means to be adaptive. This is why Lenski said the first rule of adaptive evolution confuses frequency and importance. So as long as adaptive gains of function can happen some of the time, there is no problem, let alone a fatal flaw in Darwinism, especially since new functions can be produced through a variety of means, another fact that Behe doesn't adequately deal with in his book. I'm not sure why it took us so long to get here, but Behe doesn't seem to acknowledge that mutation is not the only source of variation. And this was the second time, after seeing the title of the book itself, that I thought I must be misunderstanding Behe. How could he be that wrong? I must not understand what he's actually trying to say, since the idea that mutation is the only source of variation could be cleared up with an introductory biology textbook. But try as I might, I can't see any indication that he's using the word de-evolution anything but sincerely. And try as I might, I can't find any evidence that he thinks there are ways to get variation other than mutation. By mutation, he probably just means any change in the DNA sequence, regardless of how it changed. If that's not how he's using the term, then this is a bizarre oversight. I've never heard biologists use mutation as an umbrella term for recombinant shuffling, horizontal gene transfer, random point mutation, and so on, but I'm choosing to be charitable here. After all, Darwin Devolves is intended for a popular audience, but you'd still think he'd mention other sources of variation, since his whole case is based on evolution not being able to create new functions. He even has a section in his book entitled Variation, and in it, he only discusses mutation. No mention of recombination or anything else, just mutation, and a skeptical depiction of the role it could play in generating variation, and of course, creating new functions. Remember, variation is critical in evolution. It's the raw material for natural selection to work with. Since we're not all identical, we'll have differential success in obtaining limited resources, and surviving and making copies of our genes. One source of variation is recombination, which is what it sounds like the recombination of genetic material between different organisms, creating offspring with combinations of traits that differ from those found in either parent. The word recombination appears only once in the entire book. Exaptation is also relevant here, when there's a shift in the function of a trait. Natural selection produces adaptations and byproducts, which can be co-opted for new use. The word exaptation doesn't appear once in the entire book. He acknowledges the process by other names, like the principle of tinkering. 
I have no idea why he wouldn't just use the word exaptation, especially since so many consider it to be a decisive blow to irreducible complexity. Horizontal gene transfer, when genetic material is exchanged between organisms by something other than the transmission of DNA from parent to offspring, is also not adequately dealt with, despite the fact that both horizontal gene transfer and exaptation, as Nathan Lentz puts it, are, quote, key forces in generating diversity and innovation. We've only scratched the surface of the problems with Darwin Devolves. I'm still wrapping up part two, but it should be out in the next couple days. We'll be further discussing some of the issues with Behe's case that we've touched on, as well as a few additional problems with the reasoning of Darwin Devolves. I also wanted to mention that I started a YouTube channel where I'll be uploading all the podcasts, for all you weirdos who like to listen to podcasts that way. So if you'd be so kind, hop over to YouTube and subscribe to the channel, which is just called Emerson Green. And I have a new patron to thank, Ken Bradley. Thank you, Ken. And of course, I'd like to thank all my patrons and my patron Hall of Famers, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, Nathan Grounds, and Pre Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to put the devil in devolution, you can find me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Or subscribe on YouTube. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.